So Luke chapter 17, and we're reading verses 1 to 10. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done our duty. Thanks, Leah, and good morning, everyone. My name's Cam Maxwell, I'm one of the pastors here, and so great you can be with us this morning. Uh, what a cracking passage. Uh, millstones around the neck trees jumping into the sea, and Jesus seemingly a bit indifferent about servant welfare. There's a lot going on, isn't there? Um, now, the blue Bibles you've got in front of you have section headings, uh, sort of the italics at the start of each paragraph. If you have your Bible, it'd be good to keep it open there. Um, now, those italics, the, the section headings, are not part of the original text in the Bible. Um, the editors of the Bible sort of put these headings in to help us find things and navigate our way around, and usually these headings help. So, for instance, on the page that uh, Leah just read for us, at the top of the page there is the heading uh, in the story about rich man and Lazarus. It's called The Rich Man and Lazarus. You think, that's a helpful heading. Tell me what's in there. You know you're in trouble as a preacher uh, when you sit down to look at the passage you're about to preach on and the editors of the Bible don't really know what the passage is about. So, have a look at uh, the heading of chapter 17, verses 1 to 10. Someone sat down and thought, well, what's this all about? Oh, sin. Okay, well, hang on a second. No, it's about, it's about faith. No, wait, wait, it's about duty. Wait, got it. Sin, faith, duty, done. Let the preacher work it out. Uh, It feels like what's going on here. It is, however, uh, a better section heading than what we saw last week, uh, if you have your Bible still open. Chapter 16, verse 16. What's that section about? Well, Jesus is teaching things. What things? Additional things. Great. Additional teachings. There we go. All sorted out. It's not very helpful, is it? Um, What was very helpful last week was when uh, Malcolm Purdy preached through the end of chapter 16 for us, and uh, it was a very difficult part of the Bible. Malcolm handled it extraordinarily well. Uh, So the thing I I think Malcolm did so well and helped us so much in is seeing that chapter 16, it all fits together. It all fits together. Um, The additional teachings there are not just random things Jesus said that Luke thought, oh, here's a good spot for them. Like It all kind of fits Uh, So what we saw last week is at the end of chapter 16, Jesus is really giving the Pharisees sort of both barrels, as it were. He exposes their hearts. The Pharisees are sort of proud uh, about their law-keeping, and they're shamelessly greedy. 
So Jesus sort of blasts these very good, very religious people saying, well, actually, you don't keep the law, not even close, and your worthless kind of religiosity is doing nothing but harming people around you and taking you to hell. Now, as I was uh, listening last week, Malcolm explaining uh, this so well and so carefully and thoughtfully, it's such a tough passage, I thought to myself, I wonder if Malcolm's free to preach this week as well on the next section. Uh, it's such a, such a strange passage to come to, Luke 17. And if you missed Malcolm uh, last week, it'd be worth looking up his sermon on the website. It will, it will do you well. Uh, because, actually, Malcolm has done for me the heavy lifting today as we get to chapter 17. See, if we know what Jesus is firing up about in chapter 16, well, it helps us understand what's going on in chapter 17. Context, it's always so important as we read the Bible to help us understand what's going on. Context is always important. Now, the wider context in Luke, as we've been looking at uh, for a while now, if you've been uh, the past few weeks, um, you'll see Jesus has basically been taking his disciples through what you might say is an intensive training course. Uh, today, what we're reading is kind of a part of a training manual for disciples. That's kind of what this is. And of course, learning to be a disciple is never a finished process. That is, you might be here as a sort of a seasoned veteran, you've been following Jesus for many years. You'll know, you're not the finished product yet. Or you might just be you know, starting out in the, in the Christian journey with Jesus. Either way, uh, this passage actually has a lot in it that will help us reflect on how we're going as disciples. It will help us keep growing and maturing as we reflect on these things Jesus has to say this morning uh, as we work out how to follow him. I should also say, if you're here sort of checking things out, perhaps you're not a disciple of Jesus and you're sort of interested in uh, what's going on, I really hope uh, as you listen in to this training session Jesus runs with his disciples, uh, you get a real sense of who Jesus is, uh, why he matters, and what he's calling his disciples to be like. Be like and I hope you'll see it's, it's something pretty special. So let's jump in uh, with verse 1, where Jesus says here to his disciples, "...things that cause people to stumble are bound to come." Now, I like to think uh, Jesus and his disciples are walking along and Peter, classic Peter, trips on a rock and nearly falls over. So he stumbles, right? And I like to think Jesus uses that as a moment to teach. Probably not. Uh, Jesus here is really talking about sin, isn't he? Being tempted to sin. Jesus has, I think, or definitely does, have a firm sense of reality. Disciples are bound to encounter temptation. Things that will cause us to stumble in our faithfulness to Jesus. Now, I'm sure that's not a surprise if you've been following Jesus for a long time, but see how Jesus continues here. Woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. It's a pretty confronting image, isn't it? A massive rock, I'm pretty sure, doesn't float around the neck. A severe, violent end for those who cause others to stumble. And this, this passage, little ones, Jesus used that phrase, little ones. He could be talking about children, that's, that's possible. Uh, but elsewhere we see Jesus just talk about his disciples as little ones. So he could just be talking about disciples. What this is then is a dramatic, I think, over-the-top way of warning us, warning his disciples that actually you'd be better off dead than being responsible for leading others astray. Pretty severe. I think what helps us understand what Jesus is saying here, what he's driving at, is what we saw in Luke chapter 16, what comes just before. So Jesus has just finished exposing the Pharisees. They're very religious people, very big on keeping Moses' law, but only when it suits them. They especially liked ignoring the part about the law that confronts greed. 
The Pharisees love money, we're told. They love luxury, love social standing. And so the last thing we heard in chapter 16 last week is the sobering result of greed. That is, what happens as they continue to fail to listen to God's word, they're on a trajectory towards hell, which is, of course, far worse than death. Jesus is warning his disciples, and it's a severe warning. It's a severe warning. Don't be like the Pharisees, and don't be influenced by them. See, think about uh, the Pharisees and how they would have impacted others around them in their communities. Like The Pharisees are basically, I guess, the spiritual leaders in some ways uh, in their communities. Think about the children of the Pharisees or perhaps uh, their disciples. They're looking up to these seniors. Sort of, you know, they're supposed to be showing them the way. Or just even just think about the regular guy who rocks up to synagogue and sees the Pharisees going about their faith. What kind of life lessons do the Pharisees teach in how they live? Well, firstly, hypocrisy is fine. Greed is fine. It's a great thing, actually, to be greedy. And God's word, well, just twist it to suit however you want, especially the parts that sort of might cost you something. Now, I'm sure the Pharisees didn't go around saying those things, but they're still teaching those things, aren't they, in how they live. As others look to them for for guidance on how to live, they're saying, actually, this is the path that leads to destruction. So woe to them, says Jesus. And woe to anyone who leads Jesus' disciples away from living with Jesus as Lord. Jesus gives, doesn't he? It's a stern warning to watch ourselves. Because how we live, it affects others. It's a pretty uncomfortable thought, isn't it? Like, our sin is, is not only offensive to God, but others watching us live will be influenced by us. Yeah, influenced by sorts of things like what we do with our money, the kind of jokes we tell or laugh at, the, the way we treat alcohol, uh, the way we talk about someone when they're not there. You keep writing a massive list, couldn't you? All those things, we can cause people to stumble if we're just careless or thoughtless about them. Now, that's especially true if uh, we're an older Christian or leaders. It's especially true of parents, isn't it? As we live, we're actually implicitly, silently, giving permission for others to do the same. Now, Jesus knows we are going to sin. He's not burying his head in the sand. He knows that our kids, unfortunately, will pick up many of our worst traits. At one level, he's not saying, uh, if you stuff up at all, that's game over, too bad. We'll talk about forgiveness in a moment. That's, that's crucial in this discussion. But what he is very sternly warning us about is that the effect our sin has on others, it really matters. The Pharisees are exhibit A with their hypocrisy, their greed, their ignoring of God's word. And Jesus says, watch yourselves. He knows we're not going to be perfect, but he wants us to care. He wants us to have a concern for those around us and concern that the way we live doesn't lead them astray. Now, I found this verse uncomfortable this week. I think it's supposed to be uncomfortable, right? It's supposed to make us sort of stop, take stock, and think, how am I living? How does my life teach others watching me what's okay for a disciple and what's not? Would people watching me and the way I live, would they see something of the priorities Jesus wants me to have? Do my children learn about Jesus as they watch me live? I've got to say, I'm not by nature a particularly reflective person, so that's maybe why I felt particularly uncomfortable, because this is a command to be reflective, isn't it? 
Reflect. Watch yourselves. We need to be commanded because I find, at least, it's, it's very hard spotting sin in our own lives, especially sins like greed. Very difficult. Not sure about you, uh, I personally find it far easier to spot sin in other people's lives. Have you noticed that? Yeah. Much easier. So, I think what Jesus does in verses 3 to 4 is he shifts the discussion along to that kind of element. To see how a disciple responds when we're sinned against. Because you don't need to reflect very hard. You always notice when you sinned against, don't you? So Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins against you... Now, let's pause. How do you want Jesus to finish that sentence? What would you like him to say? If your brother or sister sins against you, just you know, politely pretend nothing happened and maybe avoid them for a while. That seems like the you know, polite Adelaide thing to do, right? No, Jesus tells us we need to take sin seriously. It matters, and of, of course it matters when we're sinned against. And it hurts. Especially, I think, when uh, it's another disciple, someone who probably should know better sinning against us, a brother or sister. Sin matters, but the sinner matters too. So it's important that we uh, help each other confront sin, to take it seriously in our lives. And so if a brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. You think, ah, that doesn't sound very comfortable, does it? It's not really the polite Adelaide way we're accustomed to, just to avoid conflict at all costs. It might be uncomfortable, it might be awkward, but the idea is that rebuking takes sin seriously, sin in our relationships, by not turning a blind eye. I think more important than that, though, I think it also takes each other seriously. Brothers and sisters, trying to work out how to follow Jesus together, we're helping each other do that as we rebuke one another. I should say, the word rebuke, let's say a little bit about that, because a rebuke shouldn't be sort of sharp or vindictive. A good rebuke, I think, is one that's been thought through carefully, it's been prayed about carefully. A good rebuke is gentle. I think it's well-timed. It's thought about the best time to raise this and to talk about it. And I don't think it would feel like an attack when you're rebuked well. I've found this at least, the times I've been rebuked well. Um, They're the most effective rebukes, I think. What I found is, at the time, I didn't even realise I was being rebuked. It was only in hindsight, ah, yeah, I was being rebuked about that. It's actually very helpful when someone gently instructs me and shows me uh, a better way to do things, a more godly way to live. So being a disciple means we do this even if it is hard, even if it is uncomfortable. We need to tell people the truth when they sin against us. Quick side note, uh, for those of you sitting here thinking, actually, no, rebuking's easy. I've always found it the easiest thing in the world. I'm actually really good at rebuking people. On behalf of all of us, let me say, no, you're not. You're doing it wrong. Please stop. (laughs) Believe it or not, actually, what we've seen so far, I think, is the easy part in these verses. Jesus goes on to say, not just rebuke them, but if they repent, forgive them. Now, sometimes that might be easy. There are little things we can forgive easily. Other times, we all know, don't we, forgiveness can be very, very hard. Partly because I think forgiveness isn't a simple thing. We're sometimes unsure what that even means to forgive someone in different situations. So what what does it mean to forgive someone? I think an okay definition would be something like letting go of resentment, not wishing uh, revenge or not seeking vengeance. Something like that is what forgiveness looks like in part. I want to say as well, though, forgiveness doesn't, I think, look like things always going back to the way they were. Forgiveness can involve a relationship changing. What I mean is, sin does have lasting lasting effects on relationships, even when there has been forgiveness. 
So for instance, imagine this. Uh, imagine you share something with me in confidence, in trust, something that's a secret, effectively. You share it with me, and I know that if I tell people that, it'll, it'll hurt you, it'll embarrass you, whatever it may be. But then I just get up here one Sunday morning in a sermon, just drop it in there, tell you this, this big secret about yourself, everyone finds out about it, and it's just horrifying, right? What a, what a way I'd, yeah, what a way to break your confidence, right? Now, I would hope at that point you would rebuke me, uh, and I would hopefully do the right thing and repent. I'd hope I'd also try and do as much damage control as possible, publicly apologise, whatever it would look like to kind of fix whatever damage I can. What else might forgiveness look like? Well, again, perhaps not holding on to resentment or trying to take vengeance on me would be a big part of forgiveness at that point. Now, you might forgive me after I've repented and gone through those things. You might forgive me, but I don't think you should tell me another secret in a hurry. Do you know what I mean? Our relationship has, has changed now. That trust has been broken. Sure, we're forgiven. That relationship, to some extent, is, is still okay. But the effect of my sin still remains, doesn't it? You have no reason to trust me, and that's okay. Forgiveness has still happened, even if uh, the relationship is now slightly different. Now, that's worth thinking about more, and I just want to say that forgiveness might be very difficult. Especially when you get to verse 4, and you realise things get even more difficult as Jesus continues. Jesus says, even if they sin against you seven times in a day, and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Now, I hope I'm right in saying this. I hope I'm right in saying that Jesus knows this is an incredibly unlikely situation. It's unlikely, right? I think he's just giving a hypothetical situation to illustrate something. Think about it. Seven times in one day, seven times someone sins against you. That already sounds like they're really out to get you, and that's, that's pretty, pretty constant. But not only that, seven times you rebuke them, and seven times they repent, and seven times you say it's okay. Now, repent, that's not just I'm sorry. Repent means I'm sorry. It won't happen again. I'll try and change. Now, if they're repenting, by times two or three on the same day, you think... I'm not sure they're taking this very seriously, this repentance thing. It is a ridiculous kind of situation. One day, all these things happen. I think Jesus is just illustrating a principle here. It's not a literal situation. And I think I, like, it's pretty clear by sort of the way you start thinking what happens as you sort of imagine this actually literally happening to you. You think, well, I get to the sixth one. And I say, okay, yes, I forgive you. That's okay. You get to the seventh one. You say, yes, that's okay. Jesus isn't saying you get to the seventh one, then start muttering under your breath, okay, I'll forgive you the seventh time. Try it one more time. You know? Jesus didn't say anything about the eighth time, did he? Here we go. It's, like, it's, not, it's not like that, is it? It's not a literal kind of account of steps you take. He's not talking about just our behavior. He's talking about our hearts here. The principle seems to be always be ready to forgive. Always be ready to forgive. That's just what Jesus' disciples do. It's a habit we keep working on, this idea we'll keep trying ready to forgive all the time. We're just people who forgive each other. That's who we are. So for a church, what that means is all our relationships are to be marked by grace. You know, trying to think the best of each other all the time. Not trying to assume the worst or guessing that someone's motivations might be sus. No, no, we try and assume the best of others as we can. We never make people earn our forgiveness we don't ignore sin, sure, but we're prepared to forgive it before we even encounter it. I think that's part of what's going on here. Now, verses like these, I think uh, it begs us to address a question I think uh, we need to consider a little bit here, because uh, it's so important. Is, the sort of, is this a sort of passage uh, that Jesus is asking victims of abuse to keep putting up with it? It's a question that uh, is likely to be asked as you read this sort of passage. 
I'm conscious that many here will be affected by uh, relationships involving abuse or aware of these things in different ways. So this morning, I just want to step through these things, uh, hopefully with great clarity, uh, and I hope it will be helpful. As we just touch on this quickly, this idea, does, does Jesus uh, ask his disciples to give uh, forgiveness all the time in a relationship abuse, an abusive relationship? Now, I need to say, I shouldn't have to say this, but I need to say, abuse is always wrong. It's always wrong. Some of the most severe words in Scripture are directed against those who abuse power. God himself, uh, who describe himself as the protector of the weak, he's the one who cares for the downtrodden and who brings uh, abusers to justice. I think that's the first thing to always say. Secondly, nowhere in the Bible uh, do we sort of see this encouragement to just accept or continue uh, allowing someone to sit in abuse. Uh, As we try and care for people, the Bible tells us to do the opposite. If we see abuse, we oppose it. Uh, We might encourage others to avoid it. That is, we see um, David, King David, we see the Apostle Paul, we see Jesus himself all taking steps at various points uh, to not fall into the hands of those who might harm them. So as a community, we want to encourage those who who might be uh, feeling trapped or or stuck that it's okay uh, to get out of an abusive situation. As far as this passage is concerned, uh, as I mentioned earlier, forgiving someone doesn't always look the same as uh, as it did beforehand. That is, it's not the same thing as trusting someone or accepting empty promises. So again, as a community, as we're trying to care for those around us, uh, we, we might encourage, you know, work towards forgiveness, that is, not harbouring resentment as, as that's possible. Yet it's appropriate to encourage people to remove themselves sometimes from situations where they might face continued harm. That's an appropriate and, I think, often necessary thing to encourage final thing I will say uh, about this today, uh, although you might like to ask questions in a moment, uh, this passage must not be used. It cannot be used to force or to guilt someone uh, into forgiving an abuser so that they stay with them or so that abuse can continue. To use these words of Jesus in that kind of way is spiritual abuse. It's gross misapplication. Now, uh, we have an SMS line if you'd like to ask questions about that, but uh, especially if that's something you'd like to think through more or have someone uh, just walk alongside you and think through these and pray with you, please see uh, me or one of the staff. Please talk to someone you trust about that, especially if you feel that um, you may need to seek help. Now, our world world is not a forgiving place, is it? I think I'm probably stating the obvious there. It's not a forgiving place. This idea of forgiveness that we've seen Jesus uh, talk about this morning, if these are the kind of habits we develop as disciples, as a community, if that kind of forgiveness marks our relationships, we can show the world something radical, can't we? A world that's not a forgiving place, as they watch on the way we live, the way we love, and the way we show grace to one another, we're showing something far better. We're showing something they're missing out on. The question is, how do we do this? Forgiveness is very hard often, and like seven times in one day, that's, that's... Impossible forgiveness, isn't it, surely? I think that's what the disciples recognise in verse 5. They cry out, increase our faith. I'm not exactly sure what they're asking, what's in their mind at this point. Now, it's it's obvious, of course, they're asking for help uh, to forgive in this kind of way. My thing is, I'm just not sure why they're saying increase our faith. It's, I think, an odd kind of way of asking for help, isn't it? Like, what do they think faith is? 
How will more faith help them do what Jesus instructs? Like, what's in, what's in their mind as they ask for an increase in faith? Like, what's in our mind as we talk about faith? It's a word we use all the time. What, what do we mean as we use the word faith? It's a bit of a slippery word. It gets used in all sorts of different ways, doesn't it? Now, what is faith? It's a kind of question you can chat about all week, or at least over coffee a bit later on, perhaps. Um, I guess a lot of people talk like faith is just what we think is true. Like faith is kind of believing some facts. We might not be able to prove them, but we just believe them. That's kind of what faith is for some people. I want to say, though, that faith in the Bible always seems to include like right believing, that kind of believing in facts, yes. Acknowledging something's true is important. But it's more than that. Faith in the Bible has a relational part to it. That is, our faith is in someone. It is an expression of our trust in someone. It's in who they are. So for disciples, faith is not just a set of ideas. It includes believing the right thing, yes. But faith is also, I think, predominantly being dependent, trusting in the work and the person of Jesus, committing our lives to him in faith. And we do that because we believe, well, he is trustworthy. He is trustworthy. We believe it's true that he is our saviour. We believe that we do need a saviour. And so we come to him for that salvation and forgiveness in faith. See, faith is a lived commitment. It's a lived commitment to serving Jesus as the King of Kings. So I'm not exactly sure what the disciples mean as they ask ask this. It does make me think, though, of um, kind of ways that people talk about faith like it's some kind of thing, like a substance you can get more or less of uh, to help you do special things. So I've heard the phrase quite often, if, you know, I wish I had your faith, They're not necessarily talking about me, I wish I had your faith, as if there's something they could get uh, that would make their life better somehow. We might have heard people say things like, well, if you just have enough faith, then God will do this, he'll, he'll heal you, or he'll give you money, or he'll help you find your lost cat, or whatever it may be. You just need to have this substance, this amount of thing that will help God uh, sort your problems out. Now that kind of thinking doesn't capture what the Bible means when it talks of faith. I say that because of what Jesus says next in verse 6. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in that sea, and it will obey you. Mustard seed. Now, actually, I've, I've brought along a mustard seed today to show you like how... Can you, can you see? No, I didn't bring one. You can't see anyway, right? Um, be a silly, silly thing to try and prove an illustration. Um, Jesus is saying like, it's not actually the amount of faith you have. If only we have enough faith, um, that's kind of misunderstanding what faith is all about, I think. Jesus is saying it's kind of the opposite here. Even with the tiniest, smallest, weakest faith, a very small trust in Jesus, even that little faith can enable the most impossible-sounding things, like forgiving someone. That can take a miracle. My point is, faith is not really about how strongly we believe something, Faith is not really about how we feel or how committed we are. Now, those things might be important and it might be included in our understanding of faith overall. What I'm saying is that what makes faith so powerful, why faith is effective, is not how much we have, but it's who our faith is in. It's who we're trusting that makes faith so powerful. That is, if we trust Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who's got power beyond imagination, if we trust him when he says, forgive those who sin against you, He'll help us. He'll help us do that. What seems seemingly impossible, he'll help us because it's not about us or about how big our faith is. We stand on his power because he's promised he'll put it to work in our lives. 
Now, you know, I think the, the idea here is about forgiving sins. That's, that's the impossible type thing. Because the mulberry tree, like, it's, it's such a strange kind of illustration, isn't it? The point here is not that we should be able to do magic tricks as disciples, you know, like Harry Potter just moving things around all over us, all over the place. Um, just imagine for a second, you're there with the disciples. I'm sure as Jesus is pointing to the mulberry tree, saying, if you have, just, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you can... You're thinking, I'm going to give this a go. Why wouldn't you? Like, you try it. Jesus just said it. You think, and you get another moment. Jesus, no, no, guys, it's just an illustration. Like, why would you even do that to a mulberry tree? Like, it's fine. It's a good tree. Don't move it. He's giving us a memorable illustration. It's vivid that it's by faith. It's by faith that we can do the seemingly impossible. It's by faith in Jesus that we're able to see areas of our lives that might be causing others to stumble. By faith in Jesus, we're able to forgive and to show grace, and then to forgive again and to show grace again. It's by faith. As because it's by faith in Jesus, it's because it's by faith we grow in our understanding of who He is and how deep and profound God's love is. It's by faith in Jesus that we can even see that we have sinned against God. It's by faith we realize actually our sin is bad, it's regular. And even though we might turn and repent, it's by faith we realize, actually, I need to go back to forgiveness again because I've, I've sinned again, even though I repented. It's by faith in Jesus that we keep going back for, God, for grace, for forgiveness. It's by faith in Jesus that we're saved. As we trust that Jesus did die on the cross for our sins. He died in our place. He substituted in for us. He took the consequences of our sin that we deserve He took the consequences of a broken relationship. He was forsaken by God on the cross. So we wouldn't have to be. It's by faith we accept that as true. It's by faith in Jesus who rose from the dead who gives us new life. It's by faith that he gives us the power of the Holy Spirit to do these things, to do the impossible things. So these are impossible things we're talking about. Salvation, eternal life, forgiveness. The capacity to forgive others, they are not things we can do or achieve or obtain. Jesus does it all. Jesus is the one who does it. We just trust him. It's great news, isn't it? It's not about me, it's about Jesus. I think that's why in verses 7 to 10, Jesus gives us another illustration. It feels a bit disjointed, but I think that's what's going on. He just said it's about faith, and then we're told about humility. Because uh, that's, that's what marks a life of faith, is one of humility, recognising it's not me, it's Jesus. What do we make of this illustration, though, verses 7 to 10? Uh, it, it does seem like uh, it's being encouraged, it's okay to not thank people for their hard work, doesn't it? When you first read it, you know, what's going on here? Let's have a quick look, verse 7 to 10. Verse 7, suppose one of you has a servant ploughing or looking after sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? No, won't he rather say, prepare my supper? Get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? The implied answer being, well, no. Now, this is a very different question, a very different culture to our own, isn't it? Jesus lives and exists, as he's talking to his disciples here, in a very different culture. We read this as modern Australians. It's almost unthinkable uh, that you you wouldn't thank someone for doing a job, no matter what it is. It's certainly unthinkable you treat someone like a servant. I want to suggest that what's going on here is Jesus is talking about what's normal in his culture. He's not saying it's good or bad. He's just saying this is just normal. 
this is how servants operate, this is how masters operate. Uh, servants do their job, they just get on with it without fuss. It's kind of the, the cultural norm that Jesus is speaking about. I was thinking of perhaps a modern equivalent, I don't think I've nailed it, but this is kind of what I've got, um, so I'll run with it. It's too late to come up with anything new. Imagine for a second, you're employed as a postman. You're a postie, you're delivering letters or packages, whatever it may be, and uh, one day you, you deliver the letter and you sort of stand around and you're waiting for the homeowner to come out and thank you. Is that what you do? Do you wait for them to come and say, oh, thank you so much, you're doing such a great job, Here, here's a basket of cookies I've baked for you, and hey everyone, come and have a look at my postman, look how well he delivers the letters. Like, no, you just, you just get on with doing your job, don't you? You don't sort of wait for applause as you just do your job. Uh, big welcome to anyone from Australia Post with us today, thank you for your hard work, by the way. <laughs> It's probably not the perfect parallel, right? It's, it's, there's some differences there, but uh, I think what you see in that kind of example is it's actually, Jesus isn't speaking about the worth of a servant or what they should or shouldn't uh, be uh, valued as. He's just saying that you have a job to do, do the job, and don't get all caught up on yourself thinking you're wonderful because you did the job you were supposed to do. I think that's a big idea. That is, if you're still worried about Jesus' teaching about servants, you think, oh, this is a bit sus, I want to find out a bit more, I encourage you to go back just a few chapters in Luke. We've already seen Jesus uh, give a great example of how he, the master, will serve his servants. completely countercultural. So if you're taking notes and you want to look up later, Luke chapter 12 from verse 35, Luke 12 verse 35, you sort of see Jesus as the master who serves his servants. Unbelievable. He cares deeply for his people. It's not about that. It's just here, Jesus is making a different point. He's making a different point, which I think is clear enough. Verse 10. You also, when you have done everything you were told to do, you should say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. Now remember chapter 16? Uh, chapter 16 we looked at last week. The Pharisees, they made law-keeping, their religion. They would kind of made it a spectator sport. Hey everyone, come and look how godly I am, was kind of the way that was operating. Jesus just trashes that idea for his disciples. Even his apostles, the superstars of the faith, saying, don't think you're some kind of superstar because you've done what I asked you. You can't put God into your debts. You can't ever think, well, we have this whole disciple thing kind of sorted out. I'd never cause anyone to stumble. I'd forgive someone the eighth time if I had to. No, no. When we know our master, when we know Jesus is the glorious King of kings, the Lord of lords, we don't want people to come and see us, do we? We want people to come and see him. We don't seek people's praise or approval. We want people to come and join us in praising Jesus. Because, you know, who cares about me? It's, it's about Jesus. That's the life of humility that a disciple lives by faith. Now, I said right at the start that uh, there is plenty in this passage, even for the, the veteran disciple to, to go back and to keep thinking through, to reflect on and to grow in. Some difficult things. Uh, we will need God's help. So would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, thank you for caring enough about us to save us from death and sin. Thank you for caring enough about us to teach us and show us how to live as your servants and disciples. Thank you for you revealed so much about yourself in your word that we can trust you, that we can put our faith in you with great confidence, knowing you'll never leave us or forsake us. Please help us, we pray, uh, to heed your warnings and your commands. Help us watch ourselves. Please help us be concerned for each other and the effect our carelessness might have on each other. Please help us be on guard and watch out for greed. Please help us grow in our grasp 
of how we've been forgiven. And so please help us forgive others in the same way. Please keep showing us your glory and majesty and help us stay humble and take great joy in serving you every moment of our lives. Amen.